So, Matthew 5, starting at verse 27. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep your oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Uh, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word, and we pray now for your Holy Spirit to take these words from the lips of Jesus and help us to understand them and apply them to our hearts and to our lives that we would be people who live as salt and light in this world and we pray these things in Jesus name amen I wonder what you would say are the key ingredients for good relationships uh, if you were to write a list I mean I'm talking about any kind of relationship um, friendships, work relationships, marriage, family, what makes, what are the key ingredients for a good relationship, do you think? How about things like good communication? That's important, isn't it? Um, understanding each other, uh, mutual respect, there's a few that would be on my list. Relationships, of course, are very, very important to God. Uh, God himself is relational. God is a personal being. Some people do think of God as being um, rather impersonal, as if God is, uh, is more of a force than anything else. Uh, they think of God as being a sort of a cosmic creating machine who, uh, you know, turns the handle to, uh, to keep the universe spinning. Uh, but the Bible speaks to us of a very different God to that, the Bible tells us that God is indeed um, personal, that he is relational, that he is loving and that he's made us in his image and because we are made in his image that means that we are made also to be relational, to live in relationship with one another. That's the way we're built, that's the way we're wired and uh, it's interesting that, um, you know, one of the really bad punishments you can give to a person is solitary confinement because it's not the way we're supposed to be living. We are built for relationships. Uh, 
And yet, if I asked you, what are some of the things that make life for us tough? Probably somewhere on your list you'd put relationships. Relationships make life tough. The fact is that often we just have trouble getting on with each other. So, what's it going to mean for us as Christians uh, to live as salt and light uh, in this world in our relationships? Well, that's a big topic, isn't it? I mean, how much time have you got? Um, you know, we could be here all day talking about that one. But we're only going to touch the surface. And we do so because it's a, an issue which Jesus touches on in uh, this Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at, which you might want to have open, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5. Now, in my uh, list of key ingredients for good relationships, there's quite a few that uh, I didn't mention, but one of them is this, uh, it's trust. Uh, trust is a key ingredient for good relationships. What happens when we no longer trust one another? We lose confidence, don't we? We feel vulnerable and we feel the need to protect ourselves from each other. Um, think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Before they rebelled against God, uh, they were naked and they felt no shame. And after they rebelled against God, what did they do? Well, they tried to hide from God. They covered themselves up from one another uh, because trust uh, was lost. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, looking at verses 27 to 37, Jesus focuses on our faithfulness in relationships. And he speaks firstly in verses 27 to 32 about the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. Now, why would Jesus choose to preach on this subject? I guess he knew his audience. That's why. Uh, we live in a culture where sexual immorality is, well, I'd, I'd describe it as being rife, actually. Uh, promiscuity is all over the place in our uh, society. And in some forms, uh, immorality is now actually considered to be uh, not immoral. It's now considered to be uh, quite acceptable. And as a society, uh, we therefore find ourselves in a state of, uh, somewhat in a state of moral confusion because uh, we want to say that certain things are okay, uh, that it's all right, everyone's doing it, but then we're trying to pick up the pieces and deal with the consequences of uh, the sexual revolution and the the damaging uh, effect that uh, our sexuality, our immorality has on people, on families and on society as a whole. Uh, we're in a state of moral confusion uh, because the same society which celebrates the, what is it, the latest movie on um, Fifty Shades of Grey? Is there a new one that's just come out? Um, the second version of that? The same society that produces Fifty Shades of Grey uh, also, um, you know, produces the Me Too movement, and understandably so, because we're trying to deal with the, the consequences of our promiscuity, and we're in a state of moral confusion. We live in a society where 
it's estimated that between 30 and 50% of Australians who are in long-term relationships uh, have been unfaithful uh, in those relationships at some point. And yet there's nothing new under the sun. Well, there is something new. I mean, we now have new technology which uh, uh, helps to facilitate the immorality. But the human heart hasn't changed since uh, the fall of Adam and Eve and certainly hasn't changed since Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago. Immorality was a big issue in Jesus' day as well. But he had to deal with um, immorality as it was being expressed in uh, his culture, so specific uh, forms of immorality. And his culture, of course, was in first century uh, Israel, was a, a very religious culture. And so he was dealing with a specific form of immorality which had religious... Um, which was in a religious framework. I've called it righteous adultery. That is, committing adultery whilst appearing to be godly in doing so. Let me show you. We're going to actually go to the middle section of the passage that was read, and then we're going to uh, go back to the earlier section. So, verse 31 where Jesus says, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, uh, is there anything strange in what Jesus says there, do you think? Do you think there's something that you have a questions about what, what he's actually saying there? Is there anything weird about it? I think that there is. I think there is. See, the question is, how is it that uh, by a man divorcing his wife and writing out the certificate of divorce, that his actions in doing that makes her an adulterer? And how is it that if she then later on marries someone else, that the person whom she marries is now also an adulterer? How does that work? When it's she who had the certificate of divorce written against her. There are a number of views on this, and I'll simply speak about uh, where I'm at on it in terms of my understanding of it. I think the, the key is verse 31, where anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, this is something which comes from the Old Testament law. It comes from um, uh, the law of Moses uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and verses 1 through to 4. Now, let me say at the outset, and I'll reiterate it throughout the, the talk today, that God's plan for marriage... Uh, is one man, one woman, together for life. It's a lifelong union. It's a union of uh, love and trust and commitment which expresses itself in the physical uh, union 
and indeed a physical union outside of the context of that kind of relationship is uh, contrary to God's will and therefore detrimental to those who are involved and to society as a whole. So God's, the point is that God's purpose in marriage is that it be lifelong. However, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses does allow for a man to divorce his wife. And it's on the grounds that he had found something indecent about her. That's the words from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Something indecent about her. Now, what does that mean? Well, God's people had always understood that to mean that she'd committed adultery. That's the something indecent. It's adultery. It's not that divorce has to happen. There can be genuine repentance and uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. But it does make sense that adultery would be a grounds for divorce. Because uh, adultery... Uh, is profound. I think we've seen some of the consequences of that just in the public arena over the last few days. Uh, the adultery is profound because it, it breaches the, the trust, the security and the confidence that really are at the core of the one flesh union between a man and a woman. There are others, other actions which breach the trust, security and confidence as well. Um, arguably, abuse does that. Um, physical, emotional, financial abuse. Uh, arguably, of course, desertion does that. Uh, so adultery may not be necessarily the only grounds for divorce, but I want to reiterate that God's intention for marriage is a lifelong union and the provision in Deuteronomy 24 is only a concession to human sinfulness and we'd want to say that it's only a last resort after, <clears throat> uh, after uh, attempts to reconcile and after repentance and, and uh, mediation and conciliation and so on or lack of repentance rather. Now, getting back to the passage, uh, in Deuteronomy 24, adultery was the grounds for divorce. And so therefore, if a man divorced his wife, what would people assume about the woman? They would assume that she was an adulteress, that she'd committed adultery. This is why Joseph wanted to divorce Mary even though they were just engaged but you understand engagement and marriage were a different thing in those days this is why Joseph wanted to divorce Mary when she discovered her pregnancy um, but note that in the gospel accounts we're told that he planned to do so quietly so as not to subject her to public disgrace because as soon as he divorced her people would know that she, they would assume that she was an adulterer and she would be, be disgraced. In that case, Joseph had assumed that as well and it's just as well the angel corrected him on that. But if a woman who was so divorced then married another man, what would people think about the other man? 
they'd think he was the homewrecker. He was the guilty party. Which I take it is why Jesus says here, if a man divorces his wife for other reasons, that he causes her to be an adulteress. Because that is what people would assume about her. That's the view I'm taking on the passage. There are other views as well. The problem in Jesus' day was that there were men who wanted two things. Firstly, they wanted to be unfaithful to their wives. And secondly, they wanted to, to look godly whilst they were doing it. Now there's a contradiction, isn't there? Right? So rather than having an affair on the side, uh, a man would divorce his current wife so that he's no longer married, then he would take up with the new woman uh, that he'd fallen in love with. And, um, but he'd have to have a, a grounds for doing that. On what grounds could he divorce his wife? Well, it kind of depends on how you interpret the indecent thing of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Does it just mean adultery? Or can you stretch it further? How far can you stretch it? How far can you legitimately stretch the definition of the indecent thing and get away with it? Um, can you just turn over for a moment to Matthew 19? where the same sort of topic comes up but in a different form and I'm just going to read the first three verses of that. Uh, in Matthew 19 it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So there's the context. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Why did they come? They, want, they, were, they, were, they weren't legit, they weren't fair income, they weren't actually genuine inquiries. They were coming to, to test him. And so they asked, quote, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Right? This was the debate that was going on in Jesus' day because there were some religious leaders who said yep you can stretch it and you can stretch it a long way there was a, a rabbi by the name of it was popular rabbi not surprisingly by the name of rabbi hillel who taught this very very wide view uh, that if there was anything that a man did not like about his wife uh, then that would be legitimate grounds under deuteronomy chapter 24 for him to write her a certificate of divorce and they listed some of those things don't like her cooking don't like her appearance that's how far it was stretched you can see it's very different from saying well you know there's uh, there's some really terrible things going on in this relationship that are uh, causing great harm and uh, and uh, and destruction so you could, that was the debate. You could divorce uh, your wife for any reason so that you could marry another. Meaning that you could look righteous because technically you weren't committing adultery because you weren't married 
when you took up with the next person. When in fact what was going on there was serial adultery. And uh, if you go back to Matthew 5, in such a way that you could actually make it like, look like your wife was an adulterer in the eyes of some. So this is how to be unfaithful and still be righteous. I wonder how we do that today. It's possible for some people actually do try to present themselves as being um, being good people, um, whilst they're uh, doing committing adultery. I read an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, which was about adultery, and one lady who they did a bit of a case study on. She said that affairs were quote good for improving your marriage. How about that? Uh, she'd been married for eight years in which time she'd had a few one-night stands and several short-term relationships. She'd been busy, hadn't she, in eight years. But she said that she was committed to her husband. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Uh, When asked why she cheats, she said, quote, I like how it makes me feel. More feminine, more exciting. I take that home with me. If anything, the flings probably help my marriage. Basically, I'm a good person. I'm doing the best for my husband. Really. Another lady shared her experience from the other side, her experience of being cheated on, saying, quote, It's more than having lost trust in him. I've lost myself. One day I was a confident, interesting woman with a great marriage and future. And the next I'm this bitter, weeping old thing, obsessed about what he'd be doing every minute. That's the reality, isn't it? The destructiveness of human sin. God's intention is that we be faithful and we be deserving of trust. Not that we be people who find excuses and look for loopholes. As God's people, uh, we need to be clear about this and we, for the good of our society, we need to be people who speak against immorality and speak against um, things such as adultery. However, we do so with a degree of humility because we don't have to commit the physical act in order to be guilty. There's also what I've called in your outlines adultery of the heart. And we move to that now in the, back into the passage in verse 27. Uh, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Well, that's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Now, this is dramatic language, isn't it? And um, if, in terms of the, the action that Jesus is saying that we should take, if 
if we were to take this literally, I reckon there'd be a lot of blind Christians walking around with a lot of missing body parts, don't you? Um, some Christians in the early uh, stages of the Christian church actually did take it literally and they made themselves eunuchs in order to obey this. Um, one of the uh, well-known church fathers, uh, Origen of Alexandria, uh, he castrated himself uh, in order to be obedient to this passage. Um, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD um, actually banned the practice <laughs> of castrating yourself on the, back, on the basis of this passage because it's not meant to be taken literally. Jesus is using a, a form of argument here which is called hyperbole and that is that uh, you make a statement where you exaggerate something uh, in order to, to make clear the utter importance of what you're saying, uh, to make clear that sin does matter. It matters immensely. Uh, sin matters to God, it should matter to us, and hell is real. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so I take it that, the, the, that, that um, you know, we can't claim to be innocent of adultery if we are people who um, feast ourselves on the bodies of those to whom we're not married. Uh, and so we need to, Paul says elsewhere, to flee from sexual immorality. Uh, so if we find ourselves in a situation of temptation or we're prone to temptation in particular ways, then don't put yourself in that situation. Uh, if your device is uh, facilitating your sin in this regard, get rid of it. Take that app off your machine. Take some dramatic action uh, to flee from sexual immorality, to avoid the temptation, because sin is serious. A missionary who was... Uh, who I knew who was reaching Muslims with the gospel, uh, and this is not a story, not an anti-Muslim story, uh, he was seeking to reach Muslims with the gospel and he told me how he helped uh, religious men to understand that they needed a saviour. And so uh, on a Friday he would actually go to the mosque and he would um, just hang around after Friday prayers as people milled around outside the mosque on the streets and so on. And one day, uh, some men outside the mosque he was talking to uh, told him that they were righteous in God's eyes because they had done all of the right things and that they had never committed adultery. But he said to them, look, I, I watch you men every week after Friday prayers <laughs> uh, and you sit here and you drink your coffee and whatever and I notice that when a woman passes by you look and then you look again and then your your eyes and your head kind of follow her he wanted them to know that they were actually committing adultery uh, in their 
in their hearts and that they needed a saviour named Jesus. And that's true of us. The, the words of Jesus here kind of, they penetrate, don't they? They cut through uh, our self-righteousness and they expose uh, the reality that we're all sinners and we need forgiveness. And of course, uh, the great news of the gospel is that no matter how we have sinned in the past, no matter our history, and no matter the, the struggles that we face daily, um, God forgives all of those who repent and who put their trust in Jesus. And it is a struggle in this life. You know, Paul uh, speaks about what a wretched man that I am who will be deliver me from this body of death. Well, we've got to struggle against sin. We've got to avoid temptation. We've got to try to cut it out of our lives. And we do so knowing that we look forward to that day when God will make us perfect. We long for that day. In a world where 30 to 50% of married people or people in long-term relationships rather are not trustworthy in those relationships, we Christians need to be salt and light. Avoiding temptation, fleeing from immorality and committing ourselves to faithfulness. And this is where this leads into the second area of faithfulness that Jesus deals with and that is faithfulness in terms of our word. Um, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, or your, for you cannot make even one hair white or black, Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You know, when I was a kid at school, apparently if you, if you made a promise but you kind of crossed your fingers like that and put your fingers behind your back, then you didn't have to keep your promise. Do you remember those days? Yeah, I was magic, you know, you, could, you didn't have to obey those promises, you had your fingers crossed. And I think that's what's going on in Jesus' day. Um, why did people swear oaths in the Bible? Well, an, an oath, it's, you're, you're calling on God as your witness and you're, uh, you're subjecting yourself to the judgment of God. Um, the Apostle Paul swore oaths. Sometimes he would make a claim, he would say something, and then he would attach to it as God is my witness. Uh, we see that in the verses that are um, cited on your sheets, Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians 1. A godly person might swear an oath under God uh, in order to express how seriously they treated the truth um, so that the other person might have some confidence. But what if you wanted to a, win someone's trust, uh, B, still have the option of breaking your promise and C, look righteous in the whole process. What if you wanted to do that? Uh, well, what you would do is you would, um, 
you'd simply leave the actual name of God out of the oath. Um, the Pharisees uh, had developed a list of, of, of oaths with precise wording which replaced God's name. Uh, so you'd say, as heaven is my witness, or as, as the earth is my witness, or as Jerusalem is my witness, or as I swear by my own head, you're not actually invoking the name of God. And the Pharisees had worked out this list. They had an approved list. So the, uh, the words that you used would determine the extent to which you were actually held to that word. It was the, um, the Jewish equivalent of crossing your fingers behind your back. It doesn't count. I didn't swear by God. Well, Jesus is saying, you know what? It's not that easy to deal God out of, out of things. Because all of those things, um, you know, heaven, earth, city of Jerusalem, your own head, all of those things, they belong to God. Uh, it's nonsense. This whole system is nonsense. But that's not all. In verse 37, the principle is very clear. The principle is... To simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. See, I don't think it's saying that Christians in court can't put their hand on the Bible and swear on the Bible. Any less than Christians sign contracts. Uh, it's the reason why you, you're doing things or not doing things. That's what counts here. We live in a world... Uh, where there is an entire legal industry which is dedicated to finding loopholes. I studied taxation law at university. I know what they do in terms of trying to find loopholes. We live in a world where uh, there are, there's different coloured lies. White lies, black lies, 50 shades of lies, I don't know. We live in a world where there are promises and there are core promises. And why are we so surprised that in a world that has made truth relative, uh, that people now complaining about fake news? Why should that surprise us? We live in a world where we feel vulnerable because we can't always trust others. Every time... I get my set of keys out of my pocket. I'm reminded that we live in a world where we can't trust others, <laughs> that we need to lock our doors. But God is worthy of our trust. And the Bible is full of God's promises to you and me, the greatest of which is the promise of sins forgiven. Now, how can we know that God is faithful? How can we know that God is worthy of us putting our whole lives into his hands? Um, can I get you to take a look at the passage that I've printed for you on your sheets in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Great passage. Where Paul says, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. We're not fickle. We're not untruthful. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, 
who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy was not yes and no. But in him, it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That is, the cross of Jesus shouts loud to us that God is faithful. That God fulfills his promises to us even at the greatest expense imaginable, the cost of his own dear son. He doesn't walk away from his promises. He doesn't walk away from us. And if we are forgiven people, then the faithfulness of the cross ought to shape our lives. Um, Faithfulness leads to trust. Trust leads to security. Security leads to healthy relationships. We are to be salt and light in our world. We are to be the kind of people who others would say, you can trust that man. You can trust that woman. They are faithful. They have proven their faithfulness. If they say that their, their word is their bond through thick and thin in all their, that's who we need to be people for whom our word is our bond in our marriages and in all of our relationships and that's not easy is it because the world the world's not going to help us to take our marriage vows seriously you know, to the exclusion of all others until we're parted by death. The world's not going to help you with that. And commitments can be broken for reasons that are small and selfish. And when we're like that, our light is extinguished and we are no longer salt. But when we're faithful... It speaks loudly to our world of a higher reality in our lives. And that, of course, is that we have experienced faithfulness. The faithfulness of God in Jesus. Let me finish with a riddle. What's the one thing that you can give away, but you still keep? It's your word, isn't it? It's your word. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your word, that your word is your bond. Uh, Father, we uh, pray for ourselves as we seek to live as salt and light in this dark and bland world. Uh, We pray, Father God, that you would uh, help us, that we would be people who have such a, a grasp of your faithfulness to us in Jesus that we would make faithfulness a cornerstone of our lives and we pray Lord God that you would help us to do so in in all of our relationships uh, to be those who uh, flee from immorality uh, to be those who avoid and resist temptation uh, to be those who uh, who make commitments to make them seriously and adhere to those commitments because of the way that you have stuck to us. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.